that, that idea of systems thinking and, and looking at almost like an architectural plan of how we do things and, and working out where we can create new connections and, and, and lock off old ones. I mean, that, that's, that's exactly what we need. Yes. And uh, this, it's almost like we have this partisanship, the same as we do politically, where it's like this team versus that team. It's like, no. Yep. And you're right. That's one of the things I see at a big picture in the different countries. And one of the, one of the sad things about having that um, sort of two-party process means that it is um, something where people bump heads. And that seems to be a, a process that then flows into so many other decision-making parts of the, the societal system. Whereas if you've got coalitions, so again, I, I can I, I talk about Finland because I, I know Finland, um, and, and their coalition of sort of five parties, um, the decision-making, the 30-year plans and those sorts of things, the discussions are very, very different. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone, and welcome to Real People where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Dr Fiona Kerr, founder and CEO of the Neurotech Institute and leading futurist and author Steve Sammartino in our first double header with previous guests. Fiona was interviewed in episode 11 of Real People and Steve in episode 16. This most certainly was an explosion of thinking as Fiona and Steve shared their observations of the world in chaos and what this means moving forward. We discuss a huge amount in a roller coaster chat from digital sovereignty to how well Australia is performing at a global scale. We discuss the hunger games of the US and lessons as to how to take a longer term perspective can be learned from places like Finland. We ponder, is Australia more like the US or Europe? And does Australia's safe stability make us lucky or lazy? We discuss systems thinking and blind spots, what future capitalism will look like, and the high likelihood we will just slot back into the comfortable old ways, even with the pause during COVID-19 to slow down and think about better ways moving forward. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! Okay now, from the beginning. Thanks, Steve and Fiona, for joining us today. Now, I, I we've you've both been on the podcast before, which is great. So I don't need to go through too much sort of prelim. I, I've been starting off with all the shows talking about what you were like as a kid, and I don't have to do that now because people can go back to previous episodes and and do that themselves. So. What I love about you guys and what I thought there was a really nice pairing is you're deep thinkers. You kind of think about the world and you observe it and you're not afraid of kind of um, going against the grain and um, creating a bit of friction, sort of working out where things um, might be against where sort of people feel comfortable. So I'm going to sort of start off with Fiona first. So what's, your, what's your take on the way the world is at the moment? Like what, the, world. The, the world is at the moment, right? Like, Particularly, like, what, what's some of the weirdest stuff you've seen in the last week? What's a what's a what's something that kind of unsettled you that you never would have thought you would be would seen? Mm. Wow, um, big question. Yes, huge question. Uh, well, across the world, very different. 
Uh, one of the things that I'm lucky enough to to be doing is still connecting with people that I know in um, in about five different countries. And what's fascinating is the real differences in how they're being affected, where their mindset is, how their gov- their government is dealing with this whole thing, um, and and that bigger picture of you can really see some of those really large. Uh, drivers for their, you know, their societies, and and some are very economically driven, some are very societally driven, and so the things that do happen in there and what's important are really different mm. in those different countries. And you spend a lot of time between Australia and the US, don't you, and other parts of the world? Yeah, yeah, and a bit of Europe. I've still got fr- uh, so friends dotted around in Europe and still Finland, still connected to Finland, um, and so the way that. Right from the start, um, people have thought about the world, the whole we're all in this together, a kind of, you know, a, a global pandemic, what that means, what's important, how you judge what you do, um, individual and group rights, whether economies are more important than social capital or, or you know, mental health. Um, it's vastly different in different places. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, can I, we'll unpack that a bit further. Steve? Weirdest thing over the last week. What are we? What are you? How are you making sense of it all? But the weirdest thing that I'm seeing is the way the American government has behaved, and I think that what's happened with COVID is really just like a spark for a whole lot of problems and unrest, and the dichotomy in opinions in society in America. And I think that the weirdest thing that we're seeing, and I think we're seeing it live, is the crumbling of an empire, maybe the world's shortest ever empire. Uh, America for the last 30 or 40 years has reduced their taxes, not educated their people and made them less healthy, and then they wonder why they come with pitchforks. Mm-hmm. You know, endemic racism. I'm not surprised that any of that stuff's not happening, and I'm not surprised that the protests are violent. And I don't know that peaceful protests actually ever make any change. There's something controversial for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I guess that's an interesting... Yeah, an and, and just of, on the, on It's the a year of burning deck, isn't it, really? It's a, it's a year yeah, we had the bushfires in Australia that were almost like a literal burning deck of yeah. talking about climate change, and then we had COVID and talking about coming together, but how we're all different, and now we've got sort of uh, the, the recent riots in the US and you've got even yeah. just different groups of people. So mm. you know, what, from your side, of how are we different? in different parts of the world, like say the US versus Australia, how are we different? I think starting, and it sounds silly, but starting with something which is the same in different places, one of the things that this kind of thing brings out is the the things that are already embedded, you know, the behaviour that's already embedded there. So if you have societies where um, you have like single... Um, drivers. So America, and I have to say Australia, you know, economic gain is the driver. Um, And so they look at everything around this through that prism. There have been really much more positive aspects here um, to do with looking after sort of people. I just hope that's maintained because we're seeing, you know, various cracks in that. Um, Whereas other countries, the countries where they have really strong uh, drivers for social equanimity and those sorts of things that's just been magnified in those countries you know if you if you listen to some of the even some of the lists I was looking the other day at the list 
um, in, say, say Finland, of some of the things to, to discuss, you know, straight away. And it is things like social housing and universal wages and making sure that people don't get fired and making sure you can still cross borders if you need to and even though mm. um, yeah, those sorts of things. So completely different discussions. Um, and I think just like Steve's saying, the US, all it's do, it, what it's doing is putting a spotlight on what's already there. You know, this, when you haven't fixed things in a society and then you have something like this, which is a, like a burner underneath it, those things become really magnified. Mm. And we can see them here. So it's, a broad, broader ten, it's a broader contextual bit of friction and protest rather than about the specific issue at the time. Yeah, really. so yeah. things that are already bubbling under the surface, mm. if you add heat to them, that's right, that's it. Some of those will explode. And they're so complex in terms of what's driving, you know, the pitchforks on the street. Um, and there's still a vast number of people over there who who agree with the lockdown and those sorts of things, you know, friends in New York. But even in New York, we take... So I've got one, f- one set of friends that are up right next to um, Central Park. And their whole idea of the lockdown is everyone's gone away you know people there have had the money to actually leave to go to other houses so it's like a a ghost town um whereas you've got people who are in the bronx and those kind of places where you know the the sirens never stop and people die and and there's chaos and so coming out of this will be a completely different experience from everything from what went wrong to levels of PTSD and everything. Mm. And it's that's the one city. So mm. it's just such a complicated thing. And Australia talks a lot about or about fairness, where mm. I think the US is more about freedom. <clears throat> so, And that could be about entrepreneurial freedom or my freedom of choice. And I think what we're seeing now, maybe is that, is that a bit of the breakdown of a country that freedom is the ultimate. So freedom is like my my freedom to make as much money as I can or, or, or like it's not about fairness necessarily, but it's about freedom. No, and it's, again, that driver. Um, so, so that comment that I can't remember who made it, but that comment about um, the in the US about the cost of lockdown is not worth the economic, you know, loss that we'll get. Um, and especially older people will be quite willing to die rather than shut down the economy. If you look at that, because that driver is economy litigious, whereas if if you look at some of the other countries where the first thing they did was safeguard people over 70 and ensure mm-hmm. that they were you know looked after and quarantined and supported because that driver was the most vulnerable now have to be the people that are looked after the you know the fastest mm-hmm. um I think fairness with us as well, that's really interesting in terms of who you talk to. Mm. Um, because, yes, we can say we're all in it together but if you and, and we'll give you support financially. But if you then make it very specific and differentiated about who gets that, there's immediate you know, messages. And if you then say, and we're going to shut it off in a short amount of time, and we've got this tsunami of people who suddenly are not going to be covered... Um, and we then wonder about why people are upset and there's mental health issues and those sorts of mm-hmm. things. You know, that's it's it's not rhetoric doesn't matter here. Yeah. It, it doesn't help. But Australia talks about it. We're all equal, mm. but maybe we're not equal. Maybe there's sort of the, there are people that get lost under the surface. Absolutely, Steve. You're, you're, you've you've written and talked a lot about, I guess, the tech juggernauts, and you sort of guess seeing. Um, I guess caution around the say Facebook, for example, of of what they're doing and and that they're not acting ethically 
is this almost coming back? Is that kind of like does this all kind of fit into this argument around the US? Kind of, I guess. So yeah, so the US, same thing, or yeah, well, they're related. The US is a, as as Fiona points out, it's a Hunger Games economy, right? And so the social proclivities in Australia are far stronger in parts of Europe. Um, we're more European than we are American. What what this crisis has done is point out the fact that even though we are very similar around the world in the way we consume from a consumption economic perspective, from a cultural perspective, we're not. And when the rubber hits the road, culture matters more than consumption every time. Mm. Uh, culture eats anything else for breakfast. It's what determines what you do and what you believe. America has shown what they believe. It's hunger games. It's different opinions. We'd rather be free and die, even though you told us that we'll get sick and die. That's fine. Give us our freedom and let us die. Um, and even if you see the way America handed out their money, you know, it went, went largely through corporations, whereas we went bottom up here. There was a really big difference. Mm. In terms of big tech, I find it incredibly interesting that for the first global pandemic in human history, World War One, World War Two, uh, the oil crisis, 87 crash, 99 crash, GFC, never before have the biggest companies in the world got stronger during a global cl- crisis or calamity. Never before in human history. Here's what's happened. The top six technology companies have increased their market capitalization by 10%, which is around about $400 billion during the crisis. Yeah. They're now 24% of the US S&P 500. Six companies. They've got stronger. They actually, and here's the crazy thing. America measures GDP as though it's the economy. It's got nothing to do with it. The GDP is a couple of companies and billionaires. It's not the truth. Mm-hmm. And so the market's nearly gone back up and they go, oh, everything's fine. No, it's not. Take out those six top companies and the market's down 12%. In any case, we should be really, really worried that when the shit hits the fan, a few corporations are getting stronger. Mm-hmm. Like the Australian government had to go cap in hand to Google and uh, Google and Apple and say, "Can I please put my my human safety app on your beautiful website? Did I pass the Did I pass the terms and conditions to get my app up there? Please let me know." Like we lack sovereignty. Mm-hmm. We don't have digital sovereignty, and that's the most important infrastructure in the in the global economy. And there's Two countries out there that are sovereign digitally, China and America. Oh, and some of Scandinavia's not bad. Well, they don't own and control their own infrastructure, so no. So they're not sovereign. They don't know. There's only, there's only two countries in the world that have sovereign digital infrastructure. That's China and America. There are no others. I guess the- so they don't have sovereignty on the most important technology that connects and meshes together the entire economic society. Well, there are ways to do that. In, in no, no, well, the technology is there. It's possible. But, but no countries have the wherewithal to understand what a natural monopoly is and that natural monopolies need to be owned and controlled by government. Mm. And these are new natural monopolies, just like the railways were new natural monopolies, electricity, water, roads, education. It's time that governments took them back. And I'm a raving capitalist, by the way. Yes, and and probably another discussion is there. Does other ways to do that in in systems, and so yeah. that's what I'm thinking yeah, about. Regulation is one. Of, I mean, regulation um, is one of them. There are there are a multitude of ways to do it, yeah. but it does seem as though we don't have the wherewithal to do it, or the understanding that the economic rationalisation error and the efficiency error that occurred around the world in the late '80s with Reaganomics that error has closed because that was a stable economic system where efficiency was required. Now we're in a build-out phase 
And so efficiency is not the primary requirement. It's actually control. control and I think and, we have yeah. to expand it out as well um, yes. to, to more factors in that kind of map, you know, that, that systems yes. map. Um, and it's interesting that one of the things that you're touching on there is, you know, big uh, government. And so some of the countries that have done quite well in this have been those that have really well integrated big government already and yep. they have systems that are already um, balanced sort of public service systems, private company systems yep. and social capital systems. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's where I don't know if we're more European here. I think we're sliding definitely towards the American model. I think we yep. kind of went in the middle with bottom-up. Um, it's interesting to look at, say, uh, I think it was terrific to, to give out money uh, for you know, jobs uh, keeper and certainly Neurotex. That's where you know we're lucky enough to to um, be in that position. But what's interesting, as soon as you say um, we're in it, we're in it together, and what we'll do is is put money out and then spend a lot of money and and build up a very complex system to then decide who gets what. Um, that sends a different message again. And there's some really interesting work on just how much it would have cost to just give everyone a flat amount of money. And it's not that much more, but the message mm. is completely better. different. Yeah, totally different. Everyone um, should have got X amount, no matter who you are, X amount, everyone gets it. A, the administration cost and speed with which you right. build would have been far better. And then we could have just reversed it out on tax returns. It would have been so much easier. Yeah. Mm. So it's, income it's both easier and it's, it's a, a totally different feeling that people get because then you really are all in it together. Yeah. Um, all in it together yeah. is the biggest lie that got told around the world. We're not all in it together. Yeah. Mm. This guy gets that, you get nothing. Oh, you're a freelancer. Sorry. Good luck, pal. You're out. Yeah. Yes, or an artist. Yeah. Part of that, I guess, the logic of job seeker more so, but job seeker and job keeper was the people who were maybe less more likely to spend it are going to get the money. So they're going to get the money. They're not going to kind of put in their savings. They're going to spend it. Spend it. Is, that, is that fair? Is that, I guess? Um, what I, the places I saw that did it, like, well, are the, I guess the places that look more at the, um, you know, national wage anyway. Mm. Um, and what they, so the way they came at it was not we need to keep the, the economy buoyant. Of course we do. But the driver there was we need to ensure that those who are vulnerable um, will will not be. We need to make sure that anyone who sits in those cracks um, in a situation like this are, um, you know, are, are looked after mm. and that we don't have those blind spots of people that are going to be stuck. Um, and that means longer-term thinking as well. So if we think of things like, well, we'll have JobKeeper, but it stops, and it stops in the same month that, um, that you know, the banks w sort of held back um, your your mortgages, rental, yeah, you know, yeah. mortgages and those sorts of things, whereas those other countries just said, well, no, they're just, that's it. They're forgiven for those six months. So you don't have a, a, a bill you're building up mm. and we don't have a stop time either for, for this payment. Um, so, um, and we don't have a situation. I think one of the things that disappointed me the most is we've always known that new start, the unemployment benefit, is too low. It's, um, and it creates, a, you know, a, avoid um, mm. with those people it creates that um polarity so suddenly everyone's on it and you realize that or those people that are put on it and realize that it's not doable and it goes up the worst thing is immediately saying but when this is finished it'll go back down and it's almost worse than the ignorance of not knowing how hard it is and now we have a government that knows that it's untenable 
but doesn't care. They're still going to put it back down. And again, that message is completely different. Mm. Are we changing a kind like, One of the things <laughs> I've found interesting with the job keeper in particular, are we changing the conversation around what the role of a business is? So a role of a business is typically they, they make a profit and, and, that, and, and, and they have staff to help them make that profit. The conversation with a job keeper seems to be turning more to almost like a basic a basic income, like a basic sort of t- turning around to go, uh, the role of a business is to employ staff. So it's a, it's a shift in the way we think about what the purpose of business is. Steve, you got any mm. sort of thoughts about that, about the, I guess, it, are, we, are we moving towards a more basic income or? I, I don't think that, <clears throat> I don't think that's the driver behind it. I mean, the, what of the role of a business is, is an interesting one that we talk about a lot. And I think you're going to have different types of businesses in an economy. And to say that the role of a business is just to employ people or, or just to make a profit, it's kind of too singular. There should be different chunks within the economy and different types of businesses where their roles are different and the purpose should be based on the, the DNA of that business and why it was formed and who formed it. So the role of government business and, and government-run enterprises you know, might well be providing monopoly services or unprofitable services that you need for a thriving economy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the traditional natural monopolies um, and it might be to, to train people and provide employment and you know, create structure. Uh, the role of a private company might, you know, might be Hunger Games, full just profit, but then the role of another company might be, I actually want to employ people and teach people and I would rather have less profit and more employees and put more back into the society. So I don't think that, and I think it would be wrong to have, here's one role, here's what business should be, just to employ people or just to make profit. I think a vibrant economy has different chunks of the economy that have different sole purposes or primary driving purposes. Hmm. And, you know, a free market economy is for people to move among those into the right place which culturally fits them. You know, I'm not, I might be the person who wants more stability and more training, but I'm, I'm prepared to give up some of the hunger games for more security. This person, now I'm going to go for it and go for the money and I know that I might end up out of my ear if I don't suit it. So I feel like it should be more fluid. Over time, things tend to, there's a pendulum that swings and it does feel like it's swung a little bit recently. You know, when I say recently, you know, with looking at the, the wide arc of history, you know, the last 30 or 40 years towards private and profitability, and that's that whole Reaganomics rationalisation era, I feel like it's starting to swing back, and especially the whole billionaire, you know, soon-to-be trillionaire argument and income disparity, which is really a big, big issue. I think it's starting to swing back and say, hey, listen, it's not just about profit. And the whole idea that if you do the right thing by the shareholders, it'll be eventually the right thing for the employees and the environment and all that, that that's bullshit. That's, it's not, it's not well, how it is. Well, we've also yeah. found that part of that is that free market, there isn't any such thing as a free market either. Um, well, that's right. Yeah. And sometimes you market. need to spin around, like it's, rather than businesses, maybe if we look at employment as a, as a thing that occurs as part of a social system. Um, one of the things for years with me looking at technologization. Um, has been looking at this, the oversimplification of a job. You know, it's not just the task. It's what what that having a job means to people. It's the structure. It's the being needed. It's the you know, it's the social system. It's the having something which is, um, I guess, good for your family. It's it's such a big structure. But it's also there's a lot of lessons in coming and doing some of the jobs that mm-hmm. we think can be technologised that we just completely underestimate. And that's com- quite apart from my whole thing around, the, you know, the beautiful chemicals you get when you're in one spot. Um, 
Yeah, so so it, again, it, it gets back to yes, those drivers around what is it that you that the employment gives to a social system? Because in the end, that's we've got the tail wagging the dog so often now. Mm. You know, that's but, what that structure. But the last do. few months has maybe allowed us to reflect and pause on what the meaning is. I There's so. been very few businesses out there that weren't growth focused. You sort of think about the big businesses like the big banks or the big tech groups or whatever. Like if they didn't grow one year on the next year, then there was a problem. So this is going to be one of the first financial years that either that in history or certainly sort of in in, in um, memorable history that it's been okay to go backwards. I, I think that's quite fascinating. So mm. it does start to change what boards expect. I, I could be able to be a CEO now and go to the board of going, we haven't grown, we've actually shrunk. Is is probably acceptable now, but I'm I'm assuming last year or the year before it wasn't. Again, it so, depends where you are. Hmm. <laughs> there are some, uh, again, some countries, some economic systems that look at private industry um, as having quite different roles in in what creates the, um, I guess the uh, the health of that okay. whole society. Um, and that depends. So we've, we've, we might have capitalism, like we might have, you know, a Norway or a, or a Finland who's capitalist, but social capitalist compared to okay. an America, which is, you know, a, a very different kind of capitalism. And so we, we call it capitalist democracy, but it's really different in what's what it's driven by and, and what's seen as success. So a broader cultural perspective on capitalism. Completely really. different um Completely different drivers and completely different success factors sit there about what denotes success. Yeah. One of the scariest things out of all of this is that all of this sort of this burning deck and this disruption and that we we fall back into comfort and then we go back to our old, old ways. So how likely is it that we will change, that economies, for example, we're talking about economies, uh, will evolve. Like, Steve, do you have any sort of thoughts on that will we just sort of slot back into our old ways or will we evolve? I, I don't think we'll slot back. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't, th- I don't think we'll evolve. I think we'll just slot straight back. Mm. I think 90% the large majority will just go back to existing behaviour patterns because we're creatures of habit. Companies form habits and culture is so entrenched if you can go back to the old way, I think most will. Uh, but, there's a, but the one thing that's interesting for me is that for those who want to change, there's a permission window. Yeah. And these permission windows don't happen all that often. Often there's a lot of change you've wanted to do, but you haven't had that opportunity or people with open minders. When the world changes around you, people go, all right, well, how, how can we do this? And all of a sudden their minds are wide open for you to insert a whole bunch of change. You know, almost like a Pareto principle, you know, 20% will take advantage of it and 80% will go back to the way they did before. I mean, the same thing happened <clears throat> if we think about... <laughs> Excuse me. The same thing uh, happened if we think about digital disruption. It wasn't a secret. Everyone knew what was going to happen to media and social and, and tech and, and data. Everyone knew. It was, it was no secret. But those with the resources just didn't do it. Hmm. They started off a little bit early 90s, mid 90s, and late 90s went, went a little bit in, but they really didn't want to change. And that's why they got disrupted. It wasn't that they didn't have the resources. It wasn't that they didn't know what was coming. They just didn't want it. Because they're just entrenched culture. This is one of those moments again, and there'll be winners that come out who change and take advantage of the shift, the fork in the road. Most won't, and most people won't. Mm. We've done a fair bit of consumer behaviour change research 
and early on everybody was talking about how consumers are going to change and people are going to change yeah. and a lot of it's saying that people really enjoyed slowing down mm-hmm. and exercising more and baking at home but a lot of them are just reverting back to old ways and they're going back into maybe they didn't have time to change some of them some of them are perhaps sort of philosophically changing their thinking maybe they're kind of pausing yeah. and sort of mm-hmm. thinking but they're I guess the thing that makes me a little bit sad is people just go back and go to this world that they were busy doing nothing. They'll go back to it pretty quickly. Mm. How many people really learned French during the last three months? We're all going to learn French, right? <laughs> or a guitar or whatever, yeah. yeah. I think there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of people who are talking mm. about changing. Again, in some places that's at higher levels than others. Um, so you've got some whole... Uh, of government groups saying we need to see what we learn from this but even that question is if it's just to strengthen an economy or if it's just you know so again it's got to be that multiple drivers the thing for me is that we have a choice here it's it's very much up to us what we learn and what we leverage one of the things that you find in something like this is we talked about how this highlights issues. So, um, so for example, and some many of those issues are known, they just sit there. So um, one of the issues in trying to pay out people was the fact that we, we haven't dealt with, you know, casualisation issues for many years. And that's messy. Well, we, could, we can actually fix, like really look at what that means. We haven't dealt with having a casualised workforce, but we still have all of our economic systems locked into kind of, you know, long-term employment. We could look at that. We haven't dealt with social housing. We could actually look at that. We could so there's lots of discussion mm-hmm. around negative gearing and all those kind of things. We haven't dealt. We've tricked apart our mental health system for years until there's nothing there, and now we're watching this mental health curve come behind COVID, and and we're going to have to deal with that with a very bare structure. So those sorts of things. If we if we turn it around and say, what are the things that have become really obvious as pressure points in this? Um, then we really can improve. But if we haven't got the the will and the capability for that, and I'll be blunt, that intellectual firepower at very senior level, then that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And right now, we haven't. The only good thing is because we've got multiple levels of government, yes, we can, we can say that we've got a very mono-visioned federal system, but state and local government really counts in this because there's a lot of things that can be done at state level now to reflect on what we can do differently in terms of what's been thrown up. Mm. Um, and even in, in work, um, I work, yes, of course, have always worked with companies around what do you do in terms of people and tech and how you work so some of those things have become really definite now you know spending time talking to people about how they work well online now they're going to be coming back into the workplace but it's really different you've got some that will all be able to come back together and so as Steve said not a lot has changed but many um so so just poking up to say New York a couple of weeks ago or last week some of the companies that really were very close and don't want to come back now, when you ask them in questionnaires, they want to stay home. When you unpick that, it's not that they don't want to connect with their people, their, their you know, their co-workers again. They really do. The problem is they're coming back to something which is really 
untenable and unusual for them. So only 30% can come back. They come back to screens and, mm. you know, social distancing. They come back to this really different world that they, because it's that cognitive dissonance and they don't like that, they'd rather actually avoid it and stay home. So, so the way that you then deal with that is not just assuming that no one needed to work with each other, but actually to have a look at what does that mean? What does that mean for workplaces? What does that mean for making them into places where people actually get together and do those things they can't do sitting on their own? Mm. How often do you need to come together? Um, finally, I'm getting to do a bit of research through Department of Defence. They came and said, so you talk about trust. How often do you need to see people in person if you're a leader to maintain trust in your, you know, in your team? Can you give us the data? No, no one's actually done the research. I've been trying to do it for years. And finally, we're going to actually get to do that because suddenly this has thrown up all those sort of questions. So there's an awful lot yeah. that we can learn. I mean, that's going to be a fascinating right. piece of research. And I think how we work, to me, is going to be the the most clearest opportunities for change. I think that, that to me, is sort of like that certainly the people are seeing that, well, we had one you know, in some of the work we were doing, people were saying, well, you could have a disability uh, where previously they've said, well, we can't, our office is not mm. suitable, so now you can technically they could work from home and, and they can live a fulfilled life because they can work. Or, well, right. or just that balance. Like we did some work a few weeks ago we released where, where people were saying the ideal, the ideal uh, situation is half at home, half in the office. So there's things we want to do where we've got to work with a team. That's great for the office. But there's times we just want to get on and do our stuff. That's great for home. Yeah. Or even just not like... That feels like a natural kind of fit. It's just something about what sounds crazy, like left, right, you know, hot, cold. It just feels intuitively right, you know. And I've worked in offices a lot, but I've been by myself for a lot of years. But that's just a mix of like I can go home and do this and I need collaboration and work. Feels intuitively right for information work. It does, and there's um, actually science around exactly what you can do at home. It's the old deep work, shallow work, task yeah, work, yeah, you know, yeah. creativity work. So potentially, we can have our offices at home where we just used to have to do that tasky mm-hmm. sort of work, and then we come in to places that look more like you know, sort of cafes. That's right. Um, but it's. I've heard so many really good things around what we should do now with with work yeah. and tech, but I've heard some real doozies that are just rubbish. And so <laughs> it's a case of really trying to get this but, right. But again, there seems to be that openness to at least thinking about it. We've got some analysis we're doing at the moment where a group did, a big government department did some research, didn't know how to analyse the results, so we're just writing it up now. So, yeah. But even just little bits, that's, not, that, that's yep. nothing sophisticated, yep. but they're just even going, what is the answer here? And maybe that maybe working from home, that balance is one of the obvious changes because the employees are going, we don't need as bigger offices, we don't need to be mm-hmm. in the CBD, we can have a team geographically disparate. Yeah. So maybe that's an obvious sort of change. Steve, any it thoughts? Feels, it feels to me as though, and like I said, most things won't change. When I say most things and most people won't change, there might be one thing in the economic spectrum that changes or one or two big things, but they can have a really big cultural flow-on effect. So let's take the work-from-home example. For me, this has been a big missing link in potential of technology for a really long time. We've just discussed it could be that 50-50 mix. But let's think about the economic second and third order effects and the externalities, positive externalities. And so the first of that might be that we change the shape of offices and they shrink a little bit. They get a little bit more like houses, a bit more funky, a bit more relaxed, lounge room, collaborative spaces, spaces which are 
more conducive to productivity and intellectual labour and emotional labour than a cubicle farm. That's the first thing. It frees up space for people to live and move within cities and car park spaces, which can then become green spaces. If I'm at home five days a week or three days a week, let's say, I can pick my kids up from school and I'm investing money in the local cafe, I'm knowing more people, I'm, you know, I exercise at the local park. And, so, and then there's less traffic on the road. You know, you take away 50% of the cars, well, all of a sudden we don't need to build another tunnel or but that, that, that's, that's the, the end of the traffic. <laughs> right, the air's cleaner. And so, and so we get all these third row. And then all of a sudden, if I'm only going to the office two, three days a week, I can live further out. So housing becomes affordable. The race to get affordable houses near a city goes down. People can live in other places. So there's all of these flow-on effects from one change. Let's say we don't get many, most things go back to normal. But if that one office thing changes, man, the positive impacts on society could be inordinate. Mm-hmm. And what you do is map positive and the negative ones, and then you put the another lens. So we've got, we've got working from home as a methodology but, but again, it has to be driven by what are the sorts of work that can be done um, remotely. So one of the other things that this has taught us is what jobs are really not good remotely. So I've got a 90-year-old mother, and that's been really interesting watching home care, um, which just cannot, very, very often it cannot be done remotely. And a lot of those people are saying, thank God we're going to be able to go back to, you know, to, to definite. So, and working in e-health what works remotely some things work fantastically remotely some things don't work at all um you know those sorts of things so again getting clever about that where it works and where because it's not going to work everywhere no it doesn't yeah and and, and that's that's such and this is the problem that we often have we have this all in all out mentality it's this or that no it's this and that and this and a little bit of that and a little bit of that and and let's experiment oh we thought that would work that didn't work okay so we need that bit but that bit we, we didn't need that yeah. You know, it's like... Yeah. It's always been the case. It's just that people weren't... Well, some people were interested, I must say. Um, um, that's how I earned my living. So some people are interested. But, um, you know, even education, like remote education, there are bits of it that um, that are brilliant. And we've known that for many years. And there are some things you cannot do remotely. That's right. And so the smart thing becomes, when do you get the students in, um, in the process? You know, even what part of the process do you? How often do you? And what for? And which bits do they do remotely? And we've actually been able to do that. We've known that for a long time. It's just that the systems, because as you say, Steve, they were there, so they just kept being used. Legacy systems, yeah, legacy that's thinking, right. hard yeah. to break it down, yeah. all or nothing. But that, that idea of systems thinking and, and looking at almost like an architectural plan of how we do things and, and working out where we can create new connections and, and, and lock off old ones, I mean, that, that's, that's exactly what we need. Yes. And you know, this, it's almost like we have this partisanship, the same as we do politically, where it's like this team versus that team. It's like, no. Yep, and you're right. That's one of the things I see at a big picture in the different countries and one of the one of the sad things about having that um, sort of two-party process means that it is um, something where people bump heads. And that seems to be a, a process that then flows into so many other decision-making parts of the, the societal system. Whereas if you've got coalitions, so again, I, I can I, I talk about Finland because I, I know Finland, and, and, and their coalition of sort of five parties... Um, the decision making, the thirty year plans and those sorts of things, the discussions are very, very different. Mm. It happens that now four of them are women and I think third how old is the 
the prime minister is now 34. Yeah, <laughs> so okay. uh, very, very different ways of, of, you know, coming together and having those complex debates. And I know that when we're there, it's, it, there's lots of systems mapping. It's very much that way of looking at things rather than... So why do they think like that, with more of a forward-thinking mindset than, say, Australia or the US might be? That's probably as... as um, there's a number of reasons, but one of the main ones actually goes to complex systems complexity. So one of the things you get uh, when you are very stable is you don't have to change. Stable systems absorb anything that pokes them into trying to be different. Um, and Australia is a very stable system. You know, the, the lazy country was part of the lucky country, that even in 64. Yep. You know, because we're, if you're really lucky, you don't have to do anything much. Um, and you tend to get lazy. Sinland was a system, uh, a country that was constantly overtaken. They had to be on the kind of edge of, they had to be you know, very ready to do things. So that's that space of possibilities you get at the edge of chaos, if you want to use the technical terms. And one of the things you get out of that is you learn that you don't know what's over the horizon, but you have to listen for weak signals, look and be ready to move. So you get very good at long lens thinking, at systems complexity, what are all the things we have to monitor and think about? So they naturally think like maps. Mm-hmm. And and are we ready to be able to move? Do we have them balanced? And are we ready to be able to move when we see something actually come at us? And it's a very different way of thinking. And various countries that do really well in leapfrog are those ones that are on that kind of edge, yeah. you know, whereas we're one There's of There's not a safety net. There's not... They're, they're, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So they have to be nimble, but mm. they also have to, th- to think widely. Was we've been really, you know, have, with so many resources, and we're far away, and there's so many things that make us able to be quite lazy. Yeah, like the mining sector has been so good for for Australia that means we've we've got a an export surplus without mining. We we we'd, we'd yeah. um, be a net importer. Yeah. So I think it's all of those sort of things yeah. that we become. A little bit fat and lazy, a bit yep. complacent. Yeah. Does this change? What, the what, world's the, changing, though, and, yeah. and the people that are making long-term dis- well, there's no one making really long-term decisions in senior levels here. They're not noticing the changes, yeah. and that's all. Uh, well, they're, they're trying to ignore it. I mean, if I think about technology now, and the, the tyranny of resources is a classic one. Look at two, two really interesting economies: are Israel and uh, Singapore. Mm. I've got nothing. Tiny little zero resources. So, so their resources, intellectual capital and, and nimbleness. I mean, Israel, they've, they've got yeah, some Israel other amazing. things there or whatever, but, you know, they've got their, their America's 50-whatever state they are. But um, you have too many resources. It doesn't serve you well once you get an economic shift or an epoch change. So as we exit the industrial age into the digital or technology age, whatever you want to frame it as, um, a lot of the things that powered our economy will work less well for us. Um, you know, oil, fossil fuels, coal, all of that. I mean, it, the game is already over. It's already yeah, been won right. and lost. It has Economics been for years. Don't add up. It's done, right? And and the fact that we're a country with some of the smartest minds, best universities and the most sunshine and we're not becoming the world's leading exporter of solar and we've got more sand than any other country. Did you know that? More silica. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and, we're not, and we're not doing anything. Yeah, you know, all the lithium comes out of the ground here, and <laughs> and, uh, and and we don't have one plant that's turning it into because um, the game now for energy is storage. It used to be generation, now mm. it's storage, 
And so there's a whole lot of interesting things that we're not doing in this country. Uh, it's based on building thing, uh, pulling materials out of the ground and building houses mm. and mm. having banks finance the houses. That's it. That's our economy. It's embarrassing. Yeah. And research is seen as, well, I remember one prime minister who made the statement, you know, we don't want to put our money into research. We put it into real things like roads. Mm. You think, oh, my God. Um, yeah. So that's a, whereas Israel, as you're talking about, and I work in Ireland, um, yeah. loads of public system money is going into making them really nimble and clever because that's clearly what they need to do um, mm. to, to gain a um, to gain a comparative advantage. So that's yeah. the way you have to think about what do you yeah. invest in. You know, is, is the classic term. Yes. Ours is eroding. Yep. Ours is eroding. You know, if you look at our education of our kids, it's, it's not very good on a global scale. You look at simple things like internet speed. You look at innovation, which sectors dominate our economy. I mean, we're in a state of decline and it comes down to leadership at the most senior levels, left or right. I mean, I don't... One thing I hate is that we barrack for political parties like their football teams in yeah, this country. It's embarrassing. How about voting on policy and pushing people to where we need to but, go? But are our people... Um, our people not as... We, we don't discuss politics or we don't keep our politicians yeah, accountable. Like you, you, you have to vote... But we don't discuss and like we don't yeah we don't have that mm. accountability. We are is our life so so comfortable that we we as people yes. we we yes, we do is. rah rah and wave the flag of Australia, but we're not willing to say that maybe we're not as strong as what we not, we believe we are. We're not, we don't have that sort of same pioneering spirit that we maybe had historically. I think we've lost the <laughs> capability for discourse very yeah, okay. much here. Yeah. And part of the issue, I, unfortunately, it was cancelled, but um, oh, actually, it's been moved. I'm, I'm doing a, a keynote about leading for um, informed and engaged instead of alert and alarmed. You know, unfortunately, we've got some very. That's a nice um, one. I love thank that. You. Thank That's you. So good. <laughs> because that really, to me, is such a difference in what you. What you wish to gain from a populace in a you know in a society, and if you if you lead for informed and engaged, it's very different what you what you ask of people, what you allow them to do, the way you engage them, the agency they have, the responsibility you have is vastly different than if it's alert and alarmed, which basically lets you shut people down, stop discourse, and be lazy and short term. Mm-hmm. And and I'm being I th- you know what though I reckon <laughs> I reckon in a way we're quite a compliant society oh yeah like we're very compliant like no one double parks their cars people don't speed people don't drink drive people pay their taxes like most most other sort of moderate economies aren't as compl- we're really compliant here and that compliance doesn't serve as well when it comes to change and large parts of that are because we actually have done economically well almost despite ourselves mm. up until now and I, I feel like it's going to come I think it's and, polarizing now. Yeah, yeah, and maybe the, the disparity in incomes will start in the next generation. Yep. I think it's really going to oh, get that Americanization, <laughs> um, and, and I worry about it. But you know, my dad used to say, you know, when the belly is full, the brain is empty, right? And, and that's what we've got. If people, yeah. I know this sounds this sounds destabilizing, but the idea that you do so well, you don't invest for tomorrow, but eventually tomorrow arrives, and you end up arriving at a not well planned planned mm. place because you had too much back then. That's right. And, yeah. and, and that sounds to do a disservice to society, but there's something about staying hungry and staying, staying, you know, 
understanding what's going on and, and having a level of involvement that just seems we're really yeah. apathetic. And it's but, not even staying hungry. It's that, again, it's that long-term view and it's that what does a successful society look like? And if yeah. you have a single driver, you need diversity in a system to make a system healthy and adaptive. Yes. And yeah. and so diverse goals and diverse ways of you know, needing those things to all work in together. But if we've got one single lens through which we measure everything and ours happens to be economic gain. The GDP. Um, yeah, Terrible. that's it. Yeah. And then yeah. every yeah. single thing is measured yeah. by Terrible. that. Mm. Yeah, I mean... The, the fact that GDP is the measure that is used around the world is an interesting historical fact, is that for the longest period of time, uh, that was a really good measure of wellness because if you had access to more money, you had access to, you know, you had food security, you had health security, you had a warm house, you had, and it was a pretty good measure during industrialization to see if our standards of living were getting higher. But, you know, for since whatever time after World War II, that as a measure, I think, is, is really ineffective. And especially given that GDP can, can grow uh, for a certain portion of society who own and control all the stocks in Australia or, or the economic resources, GDP can be going up. But uh, ironically, you know, think about someone who used to work at Ford or Toyota. Oh, yeah, or, unemployment or, can go up. Too. The GDP might have went up for, for, the, for the country. How does that help that person? That's right, yeah. But what did the government do to retrain them and give them new industries and new opportunities Instead, what they did was give 65000 per employee to hold them for 10 years in a row. That's what they gave them, mm. and they still left. Mm-hmm. But I guess and we I haven't. Uh, to me, I look at sectors like mining, and we we didn't have the um, the foresight to to take some of the, the revenue and the profitability of the mining to invest in future industries. Yeah, so right. like, yeah. retrospectively, we look at that and go, why didn't we do that? Why didn't we sort of take that? Sorry. The Nordic countries have all that stuff nationalised. I don't see – look, I – Look, and I've, I've worked for mining companies before. I've put my hand. I've actually worked with Rio Tinto. I'm moving out of coal into lithium, um, and they don't do coal now. But the, the point, and this is the truth of it, and I've even said to them, I said, you're lucky because if I was Prime Minister, it wouldn't even be a discussion. All of the mines would be owned by the government and we would hire people to dig it out. End of story. You didn't invent it. There's no value add. We'll take the money and put it into And I won't call it the mining tax. You know what I'll call it? I'll call it the Education and Hospital Future Fund. And if anyone wants to argue with that, say, what, don't you want education and hospitals? So who are you? Mm. Branding problem. And if we go back, sorry. If we go back, so to take one of your points before about the, you know, uh, the GDP, again, I guess for me, there have always been countries that for which that has only been one measure. Mm. Um, And the countries for which that's just about the only measure are the ones that we now see with increased polarisation and increased problems that we've got. So some countries that have always had other measures that are just as important, um, they're the ones that that do tend to think longer term. They're the ones that do have either the futures fund or they have. They say, okay, so you know, what is uh, what is a public service? What does um, what do we strategically back? Um, what does government put money into? What do you never privatise? They have those discussions much more, um, oh, I guess, beneficially and much in a much more long-term view. And they end up with understanding when you, when you do 
allow things to be privately managed. And even there, there's a lot more clarity for the private companies around how they um, make a profit and how they benefit, but also how they benefit the, the social and political and economic system altogether, which also means that they're quite long-lived. Companies in those countries um, aren't nearly as you know feast or famine because they're actually plugged in to, to doing something which is useful for the, for the, for the country. And they're mm. at the table around, well, what will you be involved in to do with this new method of research, for example, for the next 20 years? So they've also got a more stable base. There's a very mm. different oh, way of doing this. I guess I sort of think, what, what does this all mean for Australia moving forward? So we, our geographic isolation has been a benefit with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So, so we're, we've got a small population, we're on the other side of the world. I kind of look a little bit of going, it's great, and we're, kind of, we're not worried about the, the deaths as much. We're kind of, but, the, but then the risk is we become a complacent again. So we go, it's all okay, and we soon forget. Um, where the other the rest of the world's still in, in with a burning deck and, and, and having sort of major sort of psychological safety issues and feeling kind of quite uneasy. They're coming. We're not finished here. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So, <laughs> what what does it what does all this mean for Australia? How do how do we kind of come out of this stronger? What do you think, Steve? What's well, I think that the number one thing is that we know that there's a window here that won't stay open long. And what it means for Australia is that if you're one of the people who thrives for change and will invent it, and the truth of it, I mean, maybe the people listening to this are are, are like that. Most won't, but you can. But your window of those who say yes to certain things, who don't want to change but might say yes to what you want to do, that's open. So this is one of those times where the 10 or 20% who want to change can actually affect 50%. Because other people, even though they won't initiate the change, the window of change is open during times of crisis. So who's that 10 or 20%? So who would you say? Yeah. The window is open for those who want to change the 10 or 20%, but they can affect... So that's individuals, that's businesses. Individuals. It's you saying, I want to do this differently with my work. It's going to the government saying, here's an opportunity something we should invest in while you're economic dropshipping money out of the sky. How about we invest in this thing and that thing? It's actually an opportunity at government, with your employer, with your customers to reinvent it. The windows, it's not going to be open for long. Yeah. But if you take that window and you're one of the 10 or 20%, maybe you can affect 50% yeah, okay. because the others, even though they don't want to change, have an open mind to your change. Mm. Yeah. That's the opportunity right now. That's excellent. And I think for me, again, we have a, ch- we have a choice. The first thing I'd say is, is we haven't finished. Um, quite a few of the decisions that have been made, some have been really good here, some have been not so good, but they have been quite short-term. And so we're sort of, it's that, I think I heard someone talking about the kicking the can down the road kind of way of doing it. So we've got a lot of cans that are kind of building up. Um, so part of it for me is, is, is there going to be a capacity to stop, take, to stop um, and, and look, be more complex in the way of thinking about this as, as senior decision makers? So because we need top-down as well as bottom-up capability to deal with this. Bottom-up, there's been beautiful examples of how we, we're helping each other more, how we commit to local mm-hmm. communities more, how we connect more because we actually have a need to do that. There's a whole different discussion on, on that neurophysiological need to connect. Um, so at that ground level, there's... There's real competence and capability and there's wonderful stories that we hear. 
But we need that top-down capability as well to be more complex. As what you get otherwise is if you have really linear thinkers that are not able to do that, then they just tighten back up to that system. They go back to their comfort zone. And unfortunately, that's what might happen. So we need to help them um, to, to expand, to say these are now the times that that we can look at what's working well and what's not working. We can understand better how you set up for really good use of technology and we and how you make sure that you don't have disparity around who's going to be left behind and not and make sure that you don't leave anyone behind. That's one of the yep. mottos of some cultures um, in this. And so be and have that really clear and concise, warm um, way of dealing with that, but not popularist. Stop the popularism. Yeah. Steve, what, what's what's your big thing you're working on at the moment as an opportunity out of the chaos? The thing that I'm trying to make people look at is setting up, I'm going to call this business sovereignty. I think for, for too long we've been looking to plug into private industry platforms rather than getting platforms that are collaboratively owned by the government and society that we can all benefit from and also make businesses understand that they need to have a form of a sovereign way to go to market where they have independence. I feel like we've got these layers here where so many large companies are subservient to a few powerful ones and I feel like that's really unhealthy. It's almost like... Technology has become this big invasive species. Yeah, absolutely. It's poisoned the ecosystem. Um, and so I'm really pushing for government and I'm working you know, with the New South Wales government on the Innovation and Productivity Council there on the board and a few other large organisations on understanding digital sovereignty and understanding modern sovereignty so that we can have independence and have a rich ecosystem of interdependent but independent yeah. systems that aren't reliant on one big thing and and it's almost like an allegory for our economy it's mining and housing and whatever stuff no we we need a whole lot of little pieces joined together to make up a rich ecosystem so i've been thinking a lot about ecosystems and digital and business sovereignty and government sovereignty and that's kind of the angle that i've been going for for a long time with business and it's been really hard for me to sell that because in some ways i look like this luddite and i love technology more than Mm. anyone i'm not a luddite it's actually, we've been around the park and I've looked at history and what we've got is invasive species here and we need um, to get back sovereignty in a way so that we have a, a thriving ecosystem. So I've really been pushing for that. Don't just love big tech and use the tools the way they want you to use it. So that's the yes. thing yeah. that I've been thinking about. And it feels like that's happening in private industry, in government, with people, with businesses. There's, there's a shift there. That's good. And, and the shift is about understanding why we're doing this and how it serves society, yeah. not just a few billionaires. And that That's shift right. was occurring and 2020 has helped it move forward. Is that fair? Well, I don't know if it stopped it moving forward. No, it helped it move I forward. Think it's, it's, it's shone a light on it. Yeah, okay. Which is the first part of change. It's made it easier for me to have this discussion. Yeah, cool. Yeah, there is a window there. I, mean, I think it was... 2015, I was in Finland talking about a futures of a complex world, and my bit was was on, you know, exactly partnering with artificial intelligence for a human centric future. And it was that thing around, it's the questions that we ask that create the difference. Technology is transformational. If you ask human centric questions, yeah, and 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 that that I love what you said there about open. It's like 
AI is great so long as it's open source. Like what happened with technology is they got seconded and a boundary got put around technologies and we went to closed systems. The internet was meant to be an open system and here's what it turned out to be. It turned out to be five big technology companies Mm. with screenshots of the other four. Yeah. That's what it turned you allow out to be. A funnel that goes across a natural complex. Yeah, and so being AI needs to be an open system. Social needs to be an open system. Search needs to be an open system that we can all plug into, and it needs to operate in the same way a language does, where no mm. one owns it, controls it. Yeah. Unless we have that, then we can't have the economy that we dream of. Yeah, and some countries do nationally. What we need is global, and that's that's the difficulty. Being on the ah, you know really the national that's AI what committee. <laughs> Because how do you get different countries to agree with different short-term and long-term thinking parameters? Yep, that's right. I reckon and seven, six years ago in the first uh, the the AI national group um, over there were just forming and the, my, the first question to me was, because I'm also an anthropologist, and the first question was, so how do you align moral, ethical um, values across East and Western and Middle Eastern countries because they already knew that that was you know they were years ahead in this discussion and this debate. Those are the sorts of things that we should talk about next time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And what's your what an answer? Just what's doesn't sound like an easy question. Oh yeah, it was all oh, great. You know, easy. Just yeah. give me two minutes. <laughs> we know the question. Not sure if we know the answer. No. Well, we're actually buggered. No, I won't say yeah. that. Um, <laughs> what's your big thing you're working on, Fiona? Out of, out of all of this chaos, what's what's the big thing you're working on? Um, um, we've just finished, so, so Neurotech's just finished um, a big piece, actually, for uh, USA DO, Department of Defence, would you believe, because that's where I, they give the money for this, um, on, um, on actual human um, and computer um, you know, interface um, around what's possible, what's not possible now, how we're overestimating so many of the uses and the things to do with brain-computer interfaces, artificial intelligence, um, and so how to try and steer that better and um, and um, steer it in, I guess, the right direction and what that ethically means. Um, but for me, the other thing is just consistently, I think I, I feel like I've got a... a um, a foot in two completely different worlds. One is that beautiful neurophysiology of human connection and interaction and synchronization. And the other one is um, digging down into the real um, occurrence in, in technology of interacting with it. Um, and I just wish that we, I, I try to do, is, is get an understanding, I guess, of, of those two. Because even in this whole conversation, most of the the actual discussion I've been involved in has been that whole interconnection, you know, what we're missing now because yeah. we're isolated, um, what, what, how humans really work in this now ever more remote system. And there's a European um, group making something called a, oh, what's it called, a democratopia. And, it, and I'm commenting on that at the moment in interacting, and it's really scary because some of those structures people don't ever meet anymore even. Mm. Um, so I guess for me the really big thing is still trying to say we have unique characteristics as humans, whether it's individuals or in systems or structures or you know countries, workplaces. We have un- um, transformative capabilities as tech and understanding both of them and understanding how to utilise them really well and partner well and... Um, and that sort of thing still for me as a driver around helping us to 
to get this right going forward, mm. you know, balancing out, <clears throat> excuse me, what a real successful society looks like. That should always be the basis, no matter what the technology is, no matter what we're using. Yeah. That's the basis is what do we want our society to look like, you know, in the future? And what do we want to leave to our children and grandchildren? Yeah. And you're both talking with, um, I guess there's a friction, but feeling very optimistic about it. So yeah. it, the, the way in which you talk, there's an optimism that comes out of both of your conversations. We have is that, choice. Is that fair? We yeah. have choice. Yeah, we have choices. We have to be optimistic. And, and I'll just say that, you know, technologically, I think we've been so enamoured with possibility that we've served the technology. We've just got yeah. to start to work out how to get it to serve us. Yeah. And again, yeah. we've got fantastic models in some places. This is what frustrates me, that some of each of the things we've talked about, we've got some fabulous models internationally. Um, and and no, you can't pick things up and just plug them in somewhere else. But you can learn fabulous model, uh, sort of um, what you can learn really good lessons about where to intervene in what we're doing to yeah. start shifting and nudging things to work better. And it does take time, yeah. but there are ways to think differently about it. We need to have different measures of success, and we need to have a more complex way of looking at what the picture is driven by. You know, I, love, I love that idea that it's it's usually there. Uh, you know, climate change. We've got all the technology we need today to move to a you know in, almost entirely fossil fuel free economy. Mm. It's already here. Like now, it's like it's already. It's like it's, no. <laughs> it's just you need the political wherewithal. So that's a good spot Courage. to finish. Thank you so much.